This is Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. If you've been following Apologetics Canada for some time, you know that at our annual Apologetics Canada conference, we sometimes, or I would say we often, invite out speakers that are not necessarily widely known. I mean, in our circles, everybody knows these names, right? Like William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, Gary Habermas, all of whom we have had at our conference before. But then there are those speakers that we invite, not because they're widely known, but because of the kinds of topics that they can address. And so last year at our 2019 Apologetics Canada Conference, we invited out Dr. Andrew Grosso. Now, Dr. Grosso is a Polanyi scholar. And if you've been paying attention to the kind of work that Andy has been doing for his PhD, you know that he is writing his dissertation on the works of Michael Polanyi. And so Andy struck up a, a friendship with Dr. Grosso a number of years ago, and he's been getting some tremendous help from Dr. Grosso. And last year, Dr. Grosso came out, and Andy had a half-hour interview for one of the main sessions called Two Tales of One City. And in it, Dr. Grosso attempts to answer the question, well, are we in the best of times or are we in the worst of times? Because especially for us Christians, how we answer that question is going to shape the way we engage the culture that we find ourselves in. And I thought you guys would find this conversation really fascinating, especially given that this talk was given last year before this whole coronavirus pandemic broke out and everything else that we're seeing happening in our culture today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Just so you guys know, right at the beginning of the talk, uh, Andy is going to mention the collar that Dr. Gross was wearing. Now, if you've come across Catholic priests, you see that white collar that they wear called the Roman collar. And so Dr. Grosso was wearing one of those, just so you have a visual. And they're going to talk about, okay, why do you wear this? And, and are you Catholic? All those kinds of things. But just so you guys have that visual. So yeah, I hope you really enjoy this conversation between Dr. Grosso and Andy Steiger on Two Tales of One City. And we'll come back in the coming weeks with some of the interviews that Andy has been doing on some really practical things. So you can look forward to those. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation. so good to have you. Thanks very much. I don't know who that guy was you were talking about, but I'd like to meet him at some point. <laughs> I kept introducing everybody to him that, listen, Dr. Gross is one of the smartest guys I know, and he's one of the most culturally astute guys I know. And so he might be getting a little bit prideful from this weekend. I don't know. I don't know. Try but, not to let it go to my head. <laughs> as we start into this morning, though, uh, I, I just, on, on a lighter note, when I spend time with you and you and I will go out for, for dinner uh, and I, we've known each other for about four years now. Uh, Dr. Grosso is a Polanyi expert and whom I'm doing my PhD work in. And when we go out for dinner, oftentimes people will refer to you as father. Mm-hmm. And we've had some interesting occasions where we had a waitress one time ask us, would you, you know, told us about what was going on in her life and said, would you please pray for me? Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, uh, are you Catholic? Indeed. Uh, <laughs> 
Can you tell us about the collar? Sure, yeah, the collar. Um, I often get asked whether I'm Catholic, uh, and my answer to that is always the same. Uh, yes, I am Catholic, I'm not Roman. Um, as, as an Anglican, uh, I identify as a Catholic Christian. I, I understand Catholic Christianity to involve uh, commitment to the scriptures, commitment to the creedal traditions of the church and the traditional articulations of the faith of, church, of the church, uh, the celebration of the life of the church, especially grounded in the, uh, the primary sacraments of baptism uh, and the Eucharist. So any Christian who uh, observes those parameters for their faith and practice in my mind is a Catholic Christian. Um, I wear the collar primarily uh, as an evangelistic tool. I find that when I wear the collar and go places in public, whether I'm in an airport or wherever it is I am, if I'm in the grocery store, people will often approach me and ask me questions. Uh, they'll ask me questions about the church. They'll tell me things about their lives. Uh, they'll ask me to pray with them or for them. Um, so I find that uh, being overt about something as simple as the way I dress and, and trying to find ways of testifying to the fact that I'm a Christian and want to be available to people in whatever capacity is helpful to them uh, provides me with a number of opportunities that I probably otherwise wouldn't have. So that's the primary reason I wear the collar. Great. It worries my wife a little bit sometimes because she knows that when I drive and I get frustrated driving, she says, I don't want anybody to see you while you're driving wearing your collar. She says, you gotta, you gotta be careful when you're driving. <laughs> so, keeps me honest. Uh. Well, uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing today is we're going to start off in a dialogue this morning with Dr. Grosso is we're really going to be engaging our minds. Later today, we're going to be ending the conference with a dialogue with Noi from Bangkok, and we're going to be engaging our hearts. And as we engage our minds this morning, um, Dr. Grosso, you're one of the most culturally astute guys I know. You have been, you're very well read in these subjects, and the topic that you, discuss, that you put forward for this morning is Two Tales of One City. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, would you unpack that? Because, and does that relate with Dickens? Because it reminds me of his uh, Tale of Two Cities. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, we're going through a time, I think, of enormous transformation and change, both in the culture and in the church. And the question that I was uh, hoping that we could talk about this morning is what is the nature of the change? What is the scope of the change? And what is the church's best response to the change? And it occurred to me that Dickens really has something to offer here because his story is a, is a story about two cities. Dickens tells us a tale of two cities during a time of revolutionary change and cultural transformation. Uh, and the questions Dickens asks is what's going on uh, within the context of late 18th century Europe? Um, and, and you know, what happens in London? What happens in Paris? That's Dickens' story. Our story is a little bit different. We're asking uh, a question about the experience of the church in North American culture in, in 21st century, uh, but Dickens has something to offer. And, and, and the opening lines from Dickens' novel, I think, are helpful uh, because in many respects, this, these lines describe uh, our times. Uh, what we find, I think, in our culture today is that we're telling ourselves one of two stories. We have two stories that we're telling about the one city of Western civilization and the one city of Western culture. And one of those stories says, things are great. Uh, we are on an arc of inevitable upward progress and things are getting better and better day after day, month after month, year after year. The other story we're telling ourselves is things are terrible. We are in an, an irreversible decline. We're in a death spiral and it's just getting worse and worse as, as, the, day goes, as the days go by. And that, you know, Dickens opens his, his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with, with, with the passage that we can see now. And I hear this kind of language being used today to describe the state of Western civilization and to describe the state of culture in North America, broadly speaking. Um, so that, when, it, when I realized that Dickens had something to offer with regards to helping 
helping us orient ourselves to this conversation, it seemed to me that his title was a useful one to use. Uh, now, you know, when we, when we think about more contemporary examples of that narrative, uh, there's all kinds of examples of people who are using the best of times and worst of times narratives to try and make sense of where we are, uh, culturally speaking, even within, even within the life of the church. Um, just within the last year, for example, this is a kind of a relatively random sampling of, of books that have just been published within the last 12 months or so, uh, some of which are saying, we're in the best of times and things are great and things are getting better and it's inevitable progress from here on out. And there are others who are saying, no, it's over. Culturally, politically, socially, uh, things are collapsing, things are falling apart. Uh, it's getting worse and worse day by day and, and we need to prepare for the inevitable end. So the question that I, I, I came to this project with was, which of those narratives, if either of them, has the most to offer to the church? Well, that's, that's what I was actually gonna ask. Yeah. You know, which, which do you think is it? Is it the best of times or the worst of times? I, I did find it fascinating, you know, as I, as I look at that, that these were all written in 2018. That's right, that's uh, right. And so you really do got these two camps. Where do you find yourself? I find myself in a third camp. <laughs> <laughs> As I often do. <laughs> I think it's a little more complicated uh, than being able to say strictly either it's the best of times or it's the worst of times. Um, I've taken a lot of my cues uh, from the, the two uh, individuals whose names are on the, uh, on the screen right now, Francis Fukuyama and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, each of whom I would describe as early pace setters or trend watchers who helped identify these two different narratives, these two different trajectories fairly early on. They both wrote very uh, interesting, very influential pieces uh, many, many years ago now, right? I mean, uh, Solzhenitsyn's piece came out in the 1970s. Fukuyama's essay that I'm referring to here came out in the 1980s. And, and both of them began to kind of trace the arc of each of the narratives that I'm describing. Solzhenitsyn's narrative in, in his, uh, it was a commencement address that he gave at Harvard University, uh, was, was the beginning of what we sometimes see in the irreversible decline arc. Fukuyama's essay was published in a journal called National Interest and uh, the end of history begins to describe what we see as the inevitable progress upward arc. Uh, so I kind of followed the two of them. I've been learning from both of them and trying to follow the cues and, and, and the trends that they established and the trends that they identified. Um, and I'll walk very quickly through, through both of those just to kind of give us some sense of, of what each of them are doing. Um, Fukuyama's essay, as I, as I mentioned, was originally published in The National Interest, and, and what Fukuyama was trying to do at, at, at that, in that particular essay was account for the ascendance, the cultural ascendance, and the political ascendance, and the economic ascendance uh, of Western liberal capitalism after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and Fukuyama's question in that, in that essay, The End of History, was, have we reached the end of the ideological development of humanity? Now that communism has fallen, now that fascism is over, uh, now that we've recognized that other alternatives uh, to ways that we can go about making sense of our lives are no longer as powerful as they once were, ways like religion, uh, traditional nationalist uh, identities, things like that, uh, that's all done, we're done with that. So have we reached the end of our cultural and ideological evolution uh, in late modern uh, Western uh, forms of liberal capitalism? Uh, and, and Fukuyama has, has since, he came out pretty powerfully in that article as saying, yes, we have, this is it. He's since qualified his arguments a little bit. The last point here that you see on this slide um, identifies some more recent works of his where he's, he's uh, introduced some rethinking of his original thesis. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, Fukuyama, I think, give, gives us a good example of someone who identified fairly early on uh, an example of that upward, uh, upward 
tilting uh, arc of inevitable progress. I wanted to just uh, hone in on a little bit here, particularly two questions. The first one is, point number two, what does he mean by this total exhaustion of available alternatives? What he means by that is that within the ideological context of the culture, within the context of our intellectual and moral and aesthetic uh, framework that we use to try and make sense of our lives and make sense of our experience politically and socially and culturally, uh, Western liberalism uh, is pretty much the only option going right now. Uh, we've tried communism and that didn't work. We tried fascism and that didn't work. Uh, traditional societies that were organized around kind of a coherent, uh, coherent cult sense of cultural identity, that's out because we now live in a pluralistic context. Religion is no longer of any use to us because it doesn't hold us together socially and culturally the way it used to. So all of the traditional ways that we used to kind of hold ourselves together as a culture and orient ourselves to the projects that we gave ourselves as a culture, they're done. Uh, and, and lo and behold, Western liberalism uh, is pretty much the only option in town. Now, would this be connected into this post-human future? And what does he mean by post-human future? The post-human future book is actually a further development of an article that he published in 1999, which was 10 years after the End of History article. The End of History was published in 1989. 10 years later, he published another article in the same journal, and the title of that article was Second Thoughts. <laughs> and he was re-examining, you know, are we really at the end of history? And, and, and the, the thing that he had kind of rethought uh, in between 1989 and 1999 was the emergence of biotechnology. He said the new horizon for us now uh, is, is the field, the potential field of unlimited biological advancement uh, through the application of technology and the application of science. Now this is often referred to as transhumanism. He, I, don't, I don't remember if he used that term specifically, mm -hmm. but certainly I think some of the things that he suggested in that article and in the book, Post-Human Future, line up with the transhumanist movement as well. And I think this is an important concept for a lot of us to grab hold of, because I think some of us think that when we talk about something like evolution, that we're talking about something that has ended. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll often think, oh, we evolved to this point and it stopped. But culture doesn't see it that way. They see evolution is, on, is continuing. That's right. And, and, right. and so where, what future is that That's right. that we're evolving to? That's right. And now that we can use things like science to begin uh, developing radical new technologies to, to literally stop death, uh, right? To, uh, to even we can use technologies, we can imagine a future, some are suggesting, in which we're able to use artificial intelligence to upload human minds into a kind of a silicone environment as opposed to a carbon-based environment. Uh, and and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll enjoy a, a new kind of mortality, and uh, immortality. And it's kind of an um, interesting religion in of itself where, you know, I've even heard some say, well, listen, you know, technology will be able to heal the blind, you know, make right. the, the lame right. walk. And, right. and, and, you know, it's very reminiscent, right, to a, a New Testament idea. Sure. When John's asking Jesus, you know, or his disciples, you know, are you, are you the one? Yeah, right. And, and so we, you're kind of seeing this kind of religious trend going on there. Yeah. Fukuyama doesn't, himself, uh, he doesn't buy into, I think, uh, quite, quite that strongly. Uh, and, and the more recent book is, is probably the more interesting uh, of the three that he's written on, on this particular topic because he's begun to recognize that the problem of pluralism, his book on identity, the problem of pluralism is a little more naughty than he, I think, originally expected. Uh, one of the characteristics of uh, late, uh, late modern uh, liberalism is that pluralism is something we can manage by identifying a public square 
in which we can all pursue common projects to which we can all contribute, and there's a private sphere uh, to which we can all retreat to hold our own subjective beliefs and preferences and practices and whatever. Uh, his book on identity uh, recognizes that those spheres are not nearly so airtight as, as we once imagined them to be, and that it's very difficult uh, for people to live a robust sense, uh, to have a robust sense of meaning in life and direction and purpose in life if they're not able to live that out in the public sphere, which of course brings them into conflict with people who have different projects, different sense of meaning, different sense of purpose. So his book on identity, I think, problematizes in a different way uh, the notion that we have reached our ideological pinnacle. Uh, so anyway, Fukuyama is just exemplary, I think, of someone who identified that upward arcing trend uh, fairly early on. Solzhenitsyn, on the other hand, is quite different. Uh, he was, uh, at the time, for those of you who, who may not uh, be familiar with Solzhenitsyn's background, he was a Russian dissident. Uh, he was a, a, a military uh, officer for a number of years. He was in the uh, Soviet artillery. Um, made a few critical comments about the government that got him into trouble, spent uh, many years in the gulag, um, and, and began working as a writer to try and document his experience of life in Soviet Russia. Um, he eventually went into exile in the United States and uh, was, a, was a celebrity, and you know, everybody thought, this is great, we've got this Russian exile here who can tell us how bad the, the evil empire is and tell us how you know, terrible the Soviets are and tell us how wonderful we are. So Harvard University invited him to do a commencement address in 1978, and everybody expected Solzhenitsyn was gonna say wonderful things about the United States and wonderful things about Western capitalism and all the rest of it, and he didn't do that. He let him have it with both barrels. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, uh, so he did say, he did say, yeah, Soviet, I'm, I'm not here to recommend, you know, Soviet socialism to you, that doesn't work, it's a disaster, I, you know, I've, I've experienced it myself, but here are some problems that I see with the West, and he went on to enumerate uh, kind of a whole laundry list of issues that he saw playing out in the political sphere and in the media, and just, you know, a whole range of options, uh, a whole range of problems, and said that this is why uh, the, the path on which the West is now set uh, is not, uh, not going to work either. So in, in his essay, in that particular essay, uh, he talks about the nature of freedom uh, and the, the extent to which we now use our freedom as an excuse for transgression. Uh, that, he said that's going to ultimately end up undermining freedom. Uh, there's such a commitment to material well-being uh, and, and the accumulation of money and the accumulation of wealth. That's gonna undermine trust and uh, in, in solidarity in society. Uh, the complete loss of any sense of, of meaning in life and a complete loss of the spiritual dimension of the human experience, that's gonna be a problem and that's going to end up leading to a culture that is characterized by nihilism. So at the end of, at the end of his, call, at the end of his uh, address, Solzhenitsyn says, we have nowhere left to look except upward. The only thing we can do is recover a sense of our spiritual identity as beings who are in relation to the transcendent. And this is Harvard University in the 1970s, and people are sitting there thinking, this guy's nuts, right? So, but that, and you know... And, so Solzhenitsyn spent a few more years in the States and then eventually was repatriated to Russia and ended his life there. For those who maybe are unfamiliar with the word nihilism or nihilism, mm. uh, can you define that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the expectation or the sense that life basically has no meaning. There is no significance, no purpose, no direction, uh, no rationality at work. Uh, the idea that we can somehow tease out of our day-to-day, -day, even moment-to-moment -moment experience, uh, some sense of significance or purpose or meaning that refers us to some kind of higher order, right? Whether it's a rational order in the, in the world or whether it's some kind of transcendent spiritual order, when we, when we lose sight of that, we event, we're, we're tracking towards nihilism and life, be, life becomes completely and utterly devoid of any meaning at all. 
I want to focus in here on point number four. I think mm-hmm. this is a really important idea to understand with what's going on in our culture today. Uh, could, you, could you elaborate on the letter of the law as the standard? <laughs> Clearly need to turn off my uh, phone. <laughs> as the standard of what's right. Sure. <laughs> I'll just... Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Pretend like that never happened. What happened? I didn't see a thing. Um, One of of the arguments that Solzhenitsyn makes uh, in in this essay uh, is that when a culture loses any sense of uh, moral awareness, when we lose our moral bearings, we begin to look to the courts to decide what's right for us. Uh, We collapse morality into legality. Uh, and, and, we, and we conflate those two things, we put those two things together in a way that suggests that all we need to do in order to apprehend what's right is decide what's legal. And if it's legal, it's okay, whatever it is. And if it's not legal, it's bad by definition because it's not legal. But the idea that there's any higher sense of moral purpose or moral order uh, beyond strictly what's legal uh, becomes uh, extremely problematic. Now, I wanna hone in on this because I think this is such an important concept and, and you clued me into this. Uh, and, and we've been dialoguing back and forth on this, but one of the ways that I've just worded this is before the Enlightenment, an authoritative statement was a theological statement. As we went into the Enlightenment, an authoritative statement became a scientific mm-hmm. statement. And uh, we have been talking that we are now in what I've been calling a neo-Enlightenment, mm-hmm. that, we're, that we're transitioning into a new authoritative statement in which science is really losing its authority and law is gaining right. its authority. Right. How would you react to that? Well, it, it, I think it's kind of inevitable. Uh, Solzhenitsyn is right. When you lose any sense of the rational order of the world, when you lose any sense that the world is ordered in any kind of way, shape, or form, when you lose any, uh, any hope of coming to any kind of common ground with regards to basic moral concepts, uh, let alone moral conclusions, then, then you need something to hold things together, right? Or it's everybody against everybody. And we can't have that. Uh, we know that's not gonna work. So, so where, where else are you going to go? Well, at that point, you pretty much have to go to the state, right? I think Thomas Hobbes saw this fairly early on in the modern period. Hobbes recognized that once you've evacuated meaning and purpose from life, and once you've evacuated authority from every other dimension of human experience, the only place you can go to find security of any kind is the state. So the state has to take on more and more power. It's obligated to, right? It has to. It's not that the state even necessarily wants to accumulate all that power to itself, it's, it's, it's inevitable, right? We give it that power. Um, so Solzhenitsyn's uh, point here is, is to say that, uh, that that tendency towards statism, to, to elevate the state above all other authorities, and that tendency towards legalism and, and juridicism uh, is what characterizes a culture that otherwise has lost the capacity to, uh, to recognize meaning. What concerns you about that direction that culture's heading? All kinds of things. <laughs> um, I think the minute we lose sense of a rational order, we're no longer able to talk about truth. Once we lose sense of a moral order that exists independently of us, we're no longer able to talk about the good. We're no longer able to talk uh, across differences with one another with regards to how best to pursue the good. And once we lose a sense of any broader context within which we can talk about meaning or significance, we've lost sight of beauty. And once you lose truth, goodness, and beauty, human life becomes incredibly thin. Uh, and things begin to get uh, very weird very quickly. 
now, now, it's not that human beings will stop striving for truth or striving for goodness or striving for beauty, but the means that they will have available to them to do that and the way in which they will express that and, and the way in which they will try and articulate their understandings of truth, goodness, and beauty will, it will look increasingly destructive. Uh, they, they will kind of become self-defeating projects. Um, and, that, and that's what worries me the most. Now, we actually did a podcast on this, if you want to go deeper. Uh, Polanyi calls this a moral inversion. And so we just did a podcast yesterday with Dr. Grasso. So I'd encourage you to check out that podcast as we go deeper. We don't have time to continue down that rabbit hole uh, right now. But right. I think a lot of people are probably thinking, well, where do we go from here right. as Christians? Right. You know, how, how do we interact in a culture yeah. that's moving this direction? There's a book that came out in the mid-20th century written by a Christian uh, ethicist called H. Richard Niebuhr called Christ and Culture, and some of you may be familiar with this. And what Niebuhr tried to do in that book was to identify what he saw as the five strategies that Christians have used historically to try and ascertain how best to interact with the culture around them. Uh, and what, what he did is he plotted a continuum along which he identified five different positions that he saw the church adopting at different points in, in, in its life and its engagement with culture. The first of those positions he called Christ of culture. Uh, and, and the strategy there involves accommodating the expectations of the culture in, its, in an attempt to demonstrate the common ground that the church shares with the culture. So when we see the culture doing something good and salutary, the church comes alongside and says, we recognize that, we affirm that, we're behind you in that, we'll walk alongside you with that, uh, and our expectations are the same as yours. But that doesn't work in every instance. Sometimes uh, the church is called to stand against culture, and Niebuhr put that option at the other end of the continuum. Sometimes the culture uh, has to be told, no, this is not right, this is not true, this is not representative uh, of God's intention for humanity or, or God's intention for human life. Uh, and as the church, we are a people who are set apart, who bear witness to a different way. Uh, now, most often, the church finds itself somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Um, Niebuhr uh, identified a third position that he called Christ above culture, where the church can go to the culture and can say, look, you've got some really good ideas. You're striving for truth, you're striving for goodness, you're striving for beauty, and that's all wonderful, but you need to come higher. Let us show you how to find the fulfillment and the consummation of all those things you're longing for in the gospel. And we can help you with that uh, while recognizing the, the independence of your own projects. Again, sometimes, Niebuhr said, that's gonna involve us in, in some very paradoxical uh, kinds of relationships. We're gonna find ourselves implicated necessarily in situations that we might not have chosen, uh, and, and that's, to a certain extent, unavoidable. Uh, there, there, there's a paradoxical element to the way in which the church sometimes will have to, uh, have to interact with culture, and that's part and parcel of, of the experience of living as someone who is not of this world, being in the world but not of the world. But those kinds of opportunities, one more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> those kinds of opportunities are precisely the kinds of opportunities that we can then use to transform the culture, uh, to, to take cultural accounts of truth, beauty, and goodness, and to infuse them with the meaning of the gospel, uh, and to say, look, what, what you're actually striving for is this. Uh, this. This thing you call goodness, this thing you call moral truth, what it really is about is this. And, and we know this by virtue of what God shows to us through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the future, I think, for the church right now is to use all of these perspectives to try and ask ourselves the question, where are we at any given point in time, and where are we on any given particular issue, and to recognize that we're no longer in a situation where we can simply adopt one of these strategies over and against the others and say, okay, this strategy is gonna work in all times and all places for all problems. We've gotta be adaptable, which means we've gotta be able to exercise 
a very profound kind of discernment amongst ourselves with regards to where we think the church is called to greater wisdom, the church is called to greater holiness, the church is called to greater simplicity, uh, the church is called to dedicate itself to a new level of faithfulness in, its, in attempts to live out uh, what God is calling the church to do right now. Now, I think it's interesting from that perspective of how we're going to move forward and live that out as Christians tend not to think of either the best of times or worst of times, but one, one of the things I'm hearing more and more is um, are, things, are, are, times, are, are these Old Testament times, right? Are we, mm. are we going into exile or are we, or are we coming out of exile? Right. You know, where are we uh, in culture from that kind of Old Testament perspective? Yeah, um, the, the image of exile has been used by Christians now for some time to talk about where we are culturally and historically right now. Uh, the, the books that, you've, uh, that you see on the, on the screen are just, uh, again, a random, uh, random examples of uh, Christian authors who have tried to use the image of Israel's experience of exile in Babylon as a way of making sense of where we are culturally uh, in North America and in, in the West. Um, the exile motif is, is interesting. Uh, Israel's experience in exile was transformative for them. Uh, they had to pretty much rethink what it meant to be the covenant people of God. They had to rethink the scriptures. They had to rethink uh, what fidelity to the law looked like. They had to rethink their identity as, as members of, uh, you know, the children of Jacob. You know, when, when tribal identity gets lost, when Israel gets shipped off to Babylon, no one knows who belongs to what tribe anymore. So who are we now? We don't have the temple. We don't have the land. We don't have the king. We don't, you know, we don't have anything. How can we possibly be faithful in this, in this new context? So as they're thinking through all this uh, in Babylon, they're trying to hold on to their, to their identity as God's covenant people. Uh, and then suddenly history turns, right? As it always does. History shifts. Babylon falls. Persia is ascendant and, and Israel is allowed to return to the promised land. They go back and they find Jerusalem a, a devastation. Uh, they, they don't have the scriptures anymore. The temple needs to be rebuilt. So they set about the hard work of, of recon reconstituting themselves as the covenant people of God. Um, one of the most poignant stories uh, from the Old Testament that describes that process is taken from the book of Nehemiah. When, when they're rebuilding the temple, they discover the scrolls uh, of the scriptures. Uh, so there's a public, uh, there's a public reading of, of the covenant on one day. Uh, and all the people recognize this is fantastic. This is who we are as God's covenant people. But the more they hear, the more sad they become because the more they realize, that they, the more they realize they've lost. And by the time the reading is over, the people are weeping because they realize we have completely blown it. I mean, we, we, we haven't been living this covenant for years. I mean, we don't, we don't know how to do this anymore. Uh, but, but Ezra, the, the scribe who's reading and the other uh, leaders who are in attendance say, go your way. Uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. God is the one who is at work in your midst and God is the one who will call you to new faithfulness. So the exile narrative I think is helpful for us to think about where we might be culturally, but ultimately I think the return narrative. I was, I was gonna ask you about that because yeah. I've asked you, do you think we're going in exile or return? And you said, well, I actually think we're coming out of exile. I think so, yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think we're going into exile only if the cultural situation that the church has experienced for the last 200, 250 years is what God has in mind for the church, right? If that's God's plan for the church, if, if the experience of the church in North America for the last 250 years is what God has in mind for the way the church is to be involved in the world and involved in the culture, then yes, we're going into exile. But if that's not the case, if God's plan for the church doesn't necessarily look exactly like that, then it may be that we are among those who were born in Babylon and didn't even know it. 
And now we're being recalled to a new kind of faithfulness as God's covenant people, called to re-engage the scriptures, called to rethink worship, called to rethink Christian community, and to recover a sense of what it means to be the covenant people of God in relation to culture, but yet standing apart from it as well. The both and, right? Um, one of the clearest examples I think I see of that uh, is in the two epistles uh, that we have from Peter in the New Testament. Uh, Peter is writing to a church that uh, he identifies uh, as being constituted by aliens and exiles, but he also identifies as being right there in the heart of the culture. Uh, there, there's a, a famous passage uh, in 1 Peter 2 that's often used to, to uh, describe the church's new situation, going into exile and your aliens and live as exiles in the world. But right after this passage, Peter goes on to say, now, here's how you do this, obey the king. <laughs> Peter puts them right back into their cultural context and says, live within the context in which God has placed you. Live within the context in which God has placed the church to which you belong and be faithful as witnesses to the gospel in that context. Work for the well-being of the culture, support the established authorities, but bear witness to the gospel at all times. Now that's a pretty nuanced position. That's neither strict accommodation, you know, to use Niebuhr's language, it's neither strict accommodation, nor is it strict rejection. It's, it's somewhere in that larger middle. Not the best of times, not the worst not of times. Not the best of times, not the worst of times. Rather, reconstituting and rehabilitating and redeeming the times by witnessing to a greater sense of truth, goodness, and beauty. Because ultimately, we know that human experience is not strictly limited or characterized by what happens in this world, but ultimately what's going to happen when the whole of creation is brought to fulfillment by God's power. And that's, that is the testimony that inspires whatever it is we do in this day and age. Sadly, we're out of time, but Dr. Grasso loves to talk about philosophy, uh, theology, uh, yeah, and he's gonna be around. I would just highly encourage you, sit down with him and just talk with him. He's just a wealth of wisdom. Can we just give him a hand? Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Grasso. <laughs>